Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 38, The Knowledge Producers. Well, we're back with History Against the Grain, episode 38. We're almost a year into our podcasting history, Chris. How does that feel? It feels like it's uh, time to celebrate, not so much because we've kept the podcast going, but because we've actually managed to live for another year. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't guaranteed. When we started this. Right. Um, and it's still but, uh, not. We haven't made it. It's still not guaranteed. Yeah. That's true. Okay. I am. I did get my uh, vaccination uh, appointment. So that's that's something. As have I. You know, Josh, where they're sending us here in Santa Clara County is to yeah. Levi Stadium, which is the home of the San Francisco 49ers football team. And I know when I mentioned it to you, you said, oh, yeah, well, like out in the parking lot or something. But then I followed yeah. it up. No, inside the stadium. I'm guessing maybe, what, the 50-yard line? That'd be amazing if they, they bring the players in to give the uh, vaccinations. Maybe only maybe that's only for season ticket holders. <laughs> I don't know. It's been such a strange process, this rollout. You know, it's just further evidence of the fact that we're a failed state. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, as Josh and I, your hosts, fearless hosts, have, have already, in a previous episode now, um, laid out the you know, the argument for the United States of America being a failed state. And I would say, isn't this just further evidence? I mean, you know, my mother, who's 92, soon to be 92, uh, was able to get her vaccination at a a Shopco, that is a retail grocery store, uh, pharmacy. I'm going to Levi Stadium. Where are you going, Josh? I don't actually know. <laughs> oh wait, no, I'm going. To, I'm going to a Walgreens because one of our colleagues Naturally. sent an email yesterday saying, "Hey, Walgreens has uh, has appointments," which is a weird way for this information to get disseminated, right? You would think mm-hmm. there would be some kind of you know official channel that this would go through. Nope, somebody happened to go on a website at a particular time, <laughs> and then was able to tell the rest of us what was going on. Um, I, I sometimes show in, in my Asian history class this this video of you know when the PRC first took over in China. Uh, they sent out one of the, you know they they tried to do everything right at, all at once, but one of the things they did was sent these mobile teams of doctors out in the countryside to vaccinate people because vaccinations were still um, not very prevalent in the countryside. And so the, you know even at the time when the, the the country probably had no money, they were recovering from civil war, and and the civil war had come after World War II, Japanese occupation. You know they're still sending out the the few vehicles they have, you know with probably limited uh, supplies of of fuel. And they're going out in the countryside and just vaccinating everybody they can. Uh, we did not get quite that effort in this in this uh, in the, in our own time, did we? No, we didn't. You know, we're both members uh, of uh, Kaiser Permanente, mm-hmm. our our HMO. You know, through our respective uh, employers. Our I don't know about Janelle. I know Jenny's also in Kaiser. A lot of teachers in, in California are in Kaiser, and uh, and Kaiser is nowhere to be found as far as the uh, the vaccines are concerned. I I keep getting emails from them explaining why they can't give us vaccines. So if we'd been waiting around for actual medical supplier to do it, 
nah, wouldn't make it. So as a result, it's more like what? It's like getting tickets to, you know, a Rolling Stones concert or something, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know somebody that's got some tickets they'll sell you, or I don't know. It's pretty bizarre. They should be doing it at gas stations. That just occurred to me, right? You, you roll up, fill your tank, and then while you're doing it, you got a, a nurse there giving you the vaccine? Exactly. You wouldn't even, wouldn't even have to get out of the car, maybe. Like the old-style service stations, as they used to call them. Yeah. All right? They come around, do your windows, pump the gas, and give you your COVID vaccine. A uh, couple other items from the news. My friend, one, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who came out with a report, said that uh, since the death of George Floyd last May, more than uh, I should say, the uh, the uh, the police killing of George Floyd last yeah. May. More than 160 Confederate symbols were removed, uh, have been removed. That is from public spaces, or otherwise renamed, which is more than the previous four years uh, combined. What do you make of that? Pretty, pretty incredible. That's that seems like a, a, a large number. It'd be, it'd be helpful to know how many there still are. Well, they did note that of, yeah, hundreds yeah. still remain. Hundreds, yes. So that's that's good then. That seems like a that's a significant mm-hmm. proportion. It feels like. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a strict accounting, but hundreds uh, still remain. Uh, though they did note that uh, you know not everybody was happy about this. They they got the uh, reporter uh, got in touch with a Mr. Larry McClooney Jr., who's the uh, the Commander-in-Chief, that's his title now, Josh, of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And how do you, how do you guess Mr. McClooney felt about this? I, I, I heard that he was, he was thinking of changing the name of his own organization, right? To be sensitive to... <laughs> Did I get that wrong? Yeah, I, I, I think he's digging in. He says, we're trying to purge or sanitize American history by doing this. Um, but the law center, Southern Poverty Law Center, said that 31 public schools were expected to change their names this year to sever ties with their Confederate heritage. And gosh, you know, I was thinking, you know, you're talking about K-12, maybe elementary schools, you know, the places where, where children uh, go to school. Is it really appropriate in the first place to put the names of some of these uh you know, Confederates or maybe any any war figures, but let's say Confederates in this case. Do you, do you really want to send your kid to the Stonewall Jackson Elementary School? Seems strange to me. Um, I'm trying to think, like, what are some other world historical examples where where countries have named so many public spaces after? I mean, maybe maybe if you think about the, the colonized world, like if you went to, you know, India in the, in the 1920s or something like that, everything was named after Queen Victoria and Kitchener. Right. And, oh, sure. Uh, and, you know, but I'm sure, you know, right when, when Independence came, they renamed everything right away. It's probably hard to find a lot of those, those monuments in the, the formerly colonized world, uh, uh, you know, still. But uh, it's, it's pretty, oh, what about like Leningrad and Stalingrad in the Soviet Union being renamed eventually or going back to their old names? Um, but it's hard to find a perfect analog anywhere in the world where, like, literal traitors to the nation, were still uh, still have their names all all over the uh, the public spaces. In the uh, in the name of heritage, um, like you know, the only person uh, put to death after the Civil War for what we would now call war crimes was this guy Henry Wirtz, who was the commandant of the um, Andersonville Prison, which was a Confederate notorious Confederate uh, prisoner of war camp uh, in Georgia. After the New York Times 
had run some of the earliest uh, photographs in, in print journalism after the Civil War showing the survivors of Andersonville, these emaciated skeletal figures. You can Google them today. And it created this, this kind of public outrage, right? So, all right, so anyway, so he was tried and the only guy convicted uh, as a result of these crimes, these, these war crimes. And I was wondering, do you think there are any um, maybe uh, elementary schools named for Henry Wirtz or Andersonville? I, I, I'm guessing no, but it, it's also, I would not shock me if there was. I'm it's hoping heritage. that no. Yeah, I know. That, that's heritage too. That's right. <laughs> well, to jog your memory. doing what he was supposed to do, right? <laughs> exactly. To, to jog your memory, uh, Josh, after years of debate, now this is closer to home, closer to where we live, after years of debate, uh, largely within the San Francisco um, Unified School District's school naming, uh, school renaming advisory committee, this here in San Francisco, California, the school board voted near unanimously to rename, fo- rename 44 K through 12 schools uh, in San Francisco, based on a set of qualifications, including whether the individuals so named were had been slave owners or otherwise abetting slavery or, let's say, genocide. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, no, the number of eligible candidates are going quick uh, in, in uh, people attached to human rights violations or uh, individuals who are otherwise, quote, known racist and or white supremacist. I mean, who's really left in American history after that, Josh? <laughs> it's going to be slim pickings if you're going like before 1964 or something like that to find. <laughs> oh, wow. And and yeah, so there's been, it's been fun in San Francisco because, you know, the, the battle wasn't just between like, you know, old Confederates and liberals. Basically, you know, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of liberals were arguing over this stuff and whether this right. constituted, you know, if you take, uh, Diane Feinstein's name, you know, off a of school or Father Sarah's name off a of school or Paul Revere. These are just some of the folks uh, who are involved in this. Um, you know, are you somehow uh, erasing history? You know, are, are we just ignoring our past? Are we censoring the past? And uh, so this is a familiar argument, right? We've talked about this. Uh, before. And in today's episode, I think, you know, we want to take that conversation a little bit farther. In other words, are these names, are these emblems, are these statues, uh, are they are they depicted as history? Uh, in other words, are they associated with history? Are they, are they identified with history? Uh, because they actually represent some historical investigation that we've made as a society and determined that, yes, these are the historical truths we want preserved and posted on pedestals and school names and that sort of thing? Or are they just names that get circulated circulated around a lot over the years from generation to generation? And we've become so familiar with them that we automatically assume their history. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I think it's definitely the case that, that history has a, has a way of... of you know, self-reinforcing itself. I mean, I think you, you put it very, very well that, that because we have generations of, of students who, who, you know, in elementary school and kindergarten and first grade, they're hearing this very basic stories and the basic stories need basic characters. So they hear those characters and as they grow up, you know, their kids hear those characters. And so we all come to assume, well, these people are important. These people are necessary to, to talk about. And the, the reality is almost everybody 
that's that's kind of you know been canonized in our traditions as as quote unquote historical could be replaced by somebody else and it wouldn't really matter all that much right <laughs> you could you could tell better stories with with different people and you know you'd lose maybe something with you know getting rid of a few of these names but in so many ways you could create a, a richer uh, better history just by subbing out you know new names for for the old names um, and our, our our students our children would still learn about the past they'd still get a sense of uh, you know who they are in relation to this the society, society they live in um, you know, the, the idea that any of these names are sacrosanct and they must be preserved at all cost, um, it, it's just an example of this, uh, the self-referential history as, as you were, as you were suggesting mm-hmm. that they're important because we've said they're important. And as long as we have said they're important, then they must remain important mm-hmm. in perpetuity or history is now, um, it, history has now been destroyed in, in, in some way. That's just not the way it works. Um, you know, as, as historians, we need to understand that the past is infinite. Uh, there's an infinite number of stories that could be told. And, and the fact that we've chosen these particular stories to be at the center of the way history is thought about and taught and, and understood, it, those are choices that are made. Um, and, you know, as, as we want to talk more about, it's, it's on us to, to make better choices, right? to make different choices in some cases, mm-hmm. but also just to recognize that there are choices being made. Um, that that you know yes. the, the the title of this episode is the knowledge producers, um, and that refers to you know us as historians, um, as historical thinkers. That we're not just you know disseminating facts. Uh, we're not just taking you know uh, eternal knowledge and then uh, allowing others to to see into it. When we make choices about what names we promote, what stories we promote, we are actually literally producing knowledge. We're producing. You know these ideas of what's true and what's what's not true. It's um it's an important task and it's one that we need to take seriously. And, and to be honest, has not been taken seriously enough in the way that our, our our field has worked and the way that people have engaged with our field. I would say as well. Yeah, that's very well said. And and I would agree. I mean, I think it, listen, um, you know, and I would direct this even even at our own um, professoriate. You know, our own yes. um, our profession. Is that we've we've approached this task in a fundamentally lazy way, a kind of complacency, because you know what you say about like you know these statues and these names and these sort of you know cast of characters that get emblazoned is that um, look I you know I've compared it before right to a commemorative plate right? We all know what those are, right? You see them advertised on TV every once in a while or maybe stuck up on somebody's shelf, you know, a commemorative plate. And you think of history as a commemorative plate when you get a history that maybe maybe at a certain moment it had certain meaning or value to somebody in that moment. But then, you know, it's a plate, right? It's a sort of static, unchanging object, you know, that over time, not only does it get dusty, but, you know, to those who come later who are used to seeing this plate sort of hovering, you know, above, it reminds me of the, in the Sartre uh, play, you know, No Exit, the, uh, you know, it's a take on, on, on hell, right? And these people are stuck in an apartment together. And there's this really ug- ugly object up on the mantelpiece that kind of represents the, uh, you know, the existential degradation of hell or something like that. And that's how I see commemorative plates, yeah. you know. And so 
what, every generation that comes is just stuck with that commemorative plate, that same mm -hmm. ugly, garish, you know, poorly aesthetically imagined object, you know, and because it was there, you know, for your grandparents or something, therefore it's got to mean as much and say as much to you. I don't think that's the case. And so your point about, you know, we, we need to be better consumers of the past, you know, we, we, we need to be uh, less passive, not so lazy, uh, to understand just how these uh, histories, so-called, you know, uh, how they get produced. You know, it, it recalled all of this recalled to me, you know, because we often forget to those commemorative plates, they're often only for one particular audience, you know, and sometimes, you know, when we get misty eyed over the thought of Paul Revere's name being taken off a building, you know, we forget that Paul Revere didn't necessarily mean what we assume he means to us. Doesn't necessarily mean that to everybody, you know. In other words, uh, listen to Edward Baugh. And I had, I had sent you this piece a while back. It was uh, an essay done a few years back now called The Quarrel of the West Indian Writer with History by Edward Baugh. And he said, if history is achievement, and that was in quotes, if history is achievement and visible monuments, then we are without history, says Baugh, an African-American, Afro-Caribbean uh, writer, we are outside of history. So thinking of black lives throughout the Atlantic world uh, and how often these monuments, these statues, these school names reflect some particularly whitewashed version of history. Where does that leave you if you're on if you're not in that narrative it leaves you outside of history, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, this is something that I've been thinking about so much more uh, in the past few years. I mean, like with everything historical, much more since we started this podcast, but there's this whole whole kind of genre of history, which is about, it's almost like this contributionist history that, that, you know, we have our dominant figures in history, but there's other people who are outside maybe the dominant group, uh, you know, so that could be women uh, who have not been included as much in history, people of color, you know, whatever, whatever group we're, we're, we're talking about. And they get to have their, their names, you know, maybe they get their own commemorative plate, but only to the extent they quote unquote contributed something to to the story right that they achieve something that they have uh you know this this particular role they played um and what tends to happen there we're, by the way we're in black history month right now and black history month while i think the idea is noble it often ends up looking a lot like this kind of contributionist history like what did you do to serve to serve what right often what they're what what they're serving is uh, prevailing power structures or their helping to legitimize a power structure or their uh, their stories being fit into our prevailing, prevailing ideas about our about ourself. And it leaves very little room for the stories of people who don't quite fit into the prevailing narrative quite a, a, as well, who can't be just easily fit in in terms of contributions or quote unquote achievements. Because ultimately, you know, what's a contribution and what's an achievement is being defined by by the society, which tends to only see certain things as worthy of, of being in, included. Um, and so the result is that history has tended to follow a very narrow range of subjects. And that's, you know, the piece you're talking about. That's what the whole piece is, uh, is the author is, is Ba, is that, mm -hmm. I wanna make sure. Yeah, yeah, right. Edward Ba. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's talking about in that piece that, you know, he grew up and went to these, these public schools and, and history was all about these battles and these, you know, <laughs> generals and these these victories and, British. you know, living yeah. on, British victories, yeah. And yeah. so the people he, he thought of as important were all these British military officers. Mm -hmm. And because there wasn't a real you know, West Indian military history he could 
tap into and not a West Indian group of, of uh, you know, war leaders he could tap into. It felt like he had nothing. There was no history that, that actually, uh, you know, was his that had anything to say about him and the people and people like him. And, you know, that's that's a that's a failure of our field. Um, if, mm-hmm. if people are feeling that way, if they're feeling outside of history, that's a failure in, in, in practice of history. Um, and it's, it's, you know, one of the more incredible things over the past generation or two is how many incredible scholars have done so much work to try to, um, you know, to, we can say excavate these mm-hmm. figures from the past who, who don't have commemorative plates, you know, uh, commemorating them or, or they're not, uh, talked about in, you know, your first grade, the, the 15 minutes of history you get in your first grade, grade, grade class or anything like that, but are vital, uh, uh, individuals, vital figures, vital representations of the actual world, right? Not just the structures of power, uh, but but the world, the lived world of, of the past. Uh, yeah, I, I tell you what, you're on to some, you know, really important um, questions there. Questions that, you know, we're, we're posing this episode about, yeah, where, you know, where, <laughs> where, where does this, this knowledge get produced in the first place? You know, for, mm-hmm. for whom is it? Is it produced? And and by that point, like you say, even with something like Black History Month, which really had in the beginning a very simple was Black History Week, or or then was called in the 1920s uh, Negro History Week. Uh, Carter Woodson, the pioneering Black historian, created Negro History Week as a way to sort of you know push past the doorman of history. You know, that kept keeping him out, kept keeping yeah. the li- the lives of Black people out. And to, you know, sort of uh, claim a space there, you know, to say, listen, we're, we're not outside of history. We have a history. And that history is actually within this thing we call American history. So, so I mean, it started, you know, some really compelling efforts by, by black historians over the course of the 20th century. Um, but like most things in America, about the point where you start getting successful, it turns into a kind of commodity, like a yep. commemorative plate. And so even mm-hmm. someone who was as radical, you know, uh, as Martin Luther King was, you know, he by the time MLK becomes a commemorative plate, he's sort of made safe for all audiences, like a Hollywood mm-hmm. movie that's been, you know, deemed safe for all audiences or yep. something. And so we lose that vital edge. We lose that subversive voice that really had much to teach us about the inadequacies of the systems that, that we live in. So, yeah, in honor of Black History Month um, that isn't a commemorative plate, we want to uh, go into our next segment here to look at a scholar uh, who has done all kinds of remarkable work in trying to excavate those histories that otherwise would lie outside of history. Everybody is a star Who will rain and change the dust of Well, you know, we've been thinking about our uh, our professional lot lately, Josh, particularly as we, uh, in our own professional lives, are working to retool our curriculum, that is, the courses we teach, uh, to try and root out what we consider to be, you know, the vestiges of colonialism, of racism, 
of genocide, et cetera. And one thing we've realized, you know, both in our own uh, undertaking and, and, and discussing with our colleagues is just how often and, and how naive we tend to be, uh, in our cases, as community college history professors, about the courses we teach. In other words, those that have been on the books the longest, you know, the surveys like the U.S. survey and the Western Civ survey. You know, we've talked on other episodes about our efforts to try and retool these things or, or get rid of them completely. But when we start talking to each other, it's it's kind of remarkable to realize, you know, we've just inherited these things, many of them. And if pressed, we're, we're well, we're hard pressed to even explain the circumstances you know, or original motivations or original objects, you know, for which these courses were created. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I, I think this it's it goes back to the, you know, these what we were saying about these these names that just get recirculated in history. You know, of course, we got to talk about Paul Revere because everybody's always talked about Paul Revere. Mm-hmm. Of course, we got to teach Western Civ because Western Civ is a class that's been taught for a, for a long time. So obviously mm-hmm. and I and and you know, and, uh, you know, this is a class being taught by actual people who are in your department and, and they've been teaching it for a long time and, and therefore it needs to be taught, you know, in perpetuity for forever because it's a class that's on the catalog. You know, again, mm-hmm. it's kind of a self-reinforcing thing. We teach mm-hmm. it because it's there and exactly. it's there because we teach it mm-hmm. uh, and it can never be, be gotten rid of. But, you know, as we've talked about in, on many occasions, that the roots of Western Civ, the roots of a lot of our courses are, are based on... Um, as, as we like to say, they're based on choices that were made at some point in the past. And we can't just be content to, to live based on the choices made by, you know, mostly men, mostly white men generations ago. Um, we, you know, have a duty to try to, to not just teach the field we've inherited, but to mm-hmm. create a better field within which to work. Exactly. You know, as we uh, at, at American River College are looking uh, down the road uh, at a, a possible new hire opportunity, you know, we've engaged our colleagues, you know, and we're all trying to be very thoughtful about how we define what that new teaching field will be, because we've decided we don't necessarily want it to be what it was before. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. our, our colleagues who have, have retired gave many years of great service. But, you know, having just moved myself you know, uh, just last month, I realized just because something's been hanging on your wall a long time necessarily mean you got to it's got to survive the move, you know, and go on your wall uh, again. And there's something fundamentally healthy by whether the classes we teach or the curriculum we have, you know, or the, even the teaching fields we defined. Mm-hmm. You know, we getting trapped in the narratives that make less and less sense. Uh, and offer us stories that are harder and harder to tell. You know, we can uh, we can change them out. Those commemorative plates don't speak to us. We're so seeing these things, we don't even see them anymore. In fact, they probably drain us you know, because we walk past them every day. You know, that right. same ugly plate up on the wall, you know, is, is starting to drain us. So, yeah, because part of what these stories do in these, these classes and these, these curricula and these teaching fields and such – Part of what they can do is they can silence, truly silence and erase and obscure the lived experiences of those in the past who have so much to teach us about the world we live in now. You know, we know that courses like U.S. history routinely minimize, for example, the enormous destructiveness, uh, say, of a Western expansion or of something like slavery. 
In fact, even through a sleight of hand, often turn those into somehow narratives of progress, right? You know, something right. like the westward expansion. And yet what gets lost in all that then are the voices and lived experience of those who stood on the other side of that frontier line. In that case, let's say Native peoples uh, of the American West, maybe, you know, or even here in California. Those stories get uh, kind of as if under a, a buried under an avalanche of, of historical claims of accomplishment. And and what's left is thin or slim pickings, you know, amidst the, uh, the familiar historical choices. If what you're trying to do is understand their lived experiences, that is those who were on the other side of that front, frontier line. Now, I promised that for uh, Black History Month, we would uh, feature here today a scholar who I think uh, maybe arguably more than, than anyone else has gone into the troubled archives of our past to try and recover the uh, vestiges, the, uh, the lived traces of lives, uh, you know, again, buried under the avalanche of a certain kind of history. And I'm talking about now uh, Saidia Hartman. And we've mentioned Saidia Hartman before, I think, uh, here and there on History Against the Grain. Uh, Professor Hartman at Columbia University, recently promoted, in fact, to university professor at Columbia, which is the highest academic honor that Columbia has to bestow. She comes not from the history department, not trained as a historian, but as a um, uh, a, a lit, comparative literature and literary theorist, uh, but who has taken on over the last 25 years the work of uh, trying to recover black lives from the archives uh, of the Atlantic world, that is, uh, where historians go to do their research to find black lives in a way that doesn't continue to do violence to them as the violence was done to them, you know, in their day. So going into the archives of slavery, as Saidia Hartman, for example, and in a series of books and articles, has recounted her efforts, you know, to, uh, to produce this new knowledge. In other words, Saidia Hartman is very transparent, we might say, not just about the history that can be recovered, but the process of recovering it. Is that, mm -hmm. am I saying that right, Josh? No, I think, I think that's really well said, yeah. Okay, so we don't always pull back the curtain, right? You know, you think about the scene in The Wizard of Oz where little Toto goes over and, you know, the bellowing, fire-breathing uh, Wizard of Oz, he pulls back the curtain, it's just a little dude with some, <laughs> some levers, right? You know, mm -hmm. and uh, Toto's our hero for doing that. Because when we look at the production of history, what we often find, you know, amidst the grandiosity of the narratives and the triumphalism of the narratives, what we often find are very base motives indeed, you know, for telling the stories about, uh, uh, you know, the West, let's say, or about nation states, uh, what have you, uh, capitalism, you know, it's all there. Uh, but when you pull back that, you know, when you do your Toto uh, duty and pull back that current what we find are often very base motives. So what Saidia Hartman has done with an extraordinarily, I would say, deft touch and understanding of how these narratives obscure, these more grandiose narratives, triumphal narratives, obscure the lives of the people that were subject to the violence of them in the first place and leave them outside of history. 
And, you know, it's like we've said before, it's like the movie The Matrix. If you're living in The Matrix, the hardest thing to understand is what? (laughs) (laughs) That you're living in The Matrix, right? right? (laughs) So history has its own matrix in that sense. And nobody, I think, has done more uh, brilliantly to expose that than Saidiya. So, um, look, uh, she uh, found this out firsthand when she was doing research in the archives to try and recover the lives Uh, of enslaved peoples, particularly enslaved women, you know, from the uh, colonial era of uh, the uh, Atlantic world, uh, particularly, uh, you know, of the United States, but not exclusively of the United States. And she wrote a piece, a seminal essay, and I think it was 2008, Mm -hmm. Saidiya Hartman did, uh, called Venus into Acts. And the Venus in the title refers to the name of an enslaved woman aboard a slave ship uh, that is a transatlantic slave ship in the colonial era. Now, I say name because what uh, Saidiya Hartman found was a, a name, Venus, that was apparently bestowed on an enslaved African woman aboard a, stage, a slave ship. The woman wouldn't have, presumably a young woman in this case, would not have recognized that as her name. It was a kind of pet name bestowed on her, apparently by the crew of the ship. Now, the document, okay, because we get to the production of knowledge part of this, the document, everything comes from some material trace, does it not typically in history? That is, whatever story we have uh, began its existence in some way, either uh, on some physical document, some archival record, some other sort of artifact or something. Um, You know, I, I suppose there are exceptions to that. We might talk about things like oral, what, oral histories or something. But for the most part, what archives are, you know, uh, stacked to the brim with are physical uh, traces, that is documentary traces of some record of the past. And in this case, the story of Venus comes uh, to Saidiyahar and by way of a trial transcript uh, in England in 1792, in which the captain of a slaver, that is a slave ship, was actually brought up on trial for homicide for killing two, uh, or certainly one, but turns out there were two enslaved women on board the ship. Now, this was extraordinary in and of itself because typically that would have not been prosecutable. That sort of thing was not even considered a crime in the days of the Atlantic slave trade. But in the 1790s, England was going through a reform movement, an anti-slave trade movement, and you had a lot of political pressure to expose the crimes of the slave trade, right? So by some means, this came to be adjudicated in a court of law. Now, it's only a fleeting reference in the transcript to a a woman uh, called Venus, and even uh, really barely more than that, a suggestion that she was was killed uh, aboard the slave ship en route to the New World. The main story that Saidi Hartman was looking at in that particular document involved yet another enslaved woman who was uh, beat to death uh, uh, by by the captain, uh, who apparently uh, for several days running took a whip to this person uh, to the point where he caused her fatality. That is just the the un sort of mitigated brutality 
of this slave ship uh, scene. And so uh, Sadie Hartman is, has talked at length about how if you're going to go in search of stories of black lives, for example, in the days of slavery, the documents you're going to find typically aren't documents that were created by those who were enslaved. They're not first-person narratives. There, there are a few of those, although she's no, she knows there's not a single known extant first-person narrative by an enslaved black woman recounting the uh, transatlantic slave trade. In other words, there's, there's not even one. There, there, are, uh, there are a few written by enslaved men or narrated by enslaved men, but so far it seems not a single extant surviving record uh, from the perspective of an enslaved woman. So as a result, how do we learn about the lives of these enslaved women? Well, like Saidiya Hartman says, you read uh, transcripts from trials by white folks, in this case English courts, involving English slave ship captains and slave crew members, slave ship crew members, uh, you know, English barristers and the like. No, this is a story that only fleetingly reflects on the life of the enslaved black woman, but entirely narrated under the voice then of the uh, enslavers or the legal and judicial systems of the countries that created those systems of slavery. So you can see the dilemma, right? Yeah, I mean, she quotes in that in that piece, she quotes Michelle Foucault, who says, quote, little, little more than a register of her encounter with power, that, that that's all we're mm-hmm. seeing. That's all we ever the only glimpse we ever get is these encounters with power. Um, and aside from that, we get so little of the actual humanity, the actual personality, the actual, you know, lived experience of how they thought, how they felt, how they um, experienced the world mm-hmm. of hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of, of people whose voices never get heard. And, and so her project very much is to try to figure out ways to make those voices heard um, in a way that you just can't if it's only through these brief glimpses in, in these, you know, essentially imperial archives, mm-hmm. which are uh, archives of, of, of power, not archives of the powerless. Exactly. And, and you know, she says there, there are archives of violence as a result. Mm-hmm. You know, she says the archive of slavery rests upon a founding violence. This violence determines, regulates, and organizes the kinds of statements that can be made about slavery, and as well, it creates subjects and objects of power. So, in this case, the violence, uh, and and as she and as she's pointed, and others have pointed out, it's often rendered almost cinematic, almost theatrical. That the recreations of these violent episodes, the whipping, you know, by the captain, uh, the the leather whip, and the human flesh, and the blood, and the shrieks. I mean, there's this almost. A kind of theatrical, if not voyeuristic quality, you know, because it's often depicted in terms of the naked flesh and its libidinous, yeah. right? This violence. And so it even removes us further still from the perspective of the victim, you know, and um, even the name in this case is, is not uh, assumed or, or understood to be an authentic name, but one that was simply put upon them. And so whether it's that kind of physical violence or, or sexual assaults or any, I mean, it's really a catalog of horrors. Once you go into these archives looking for black lives, you have to mediate all these and navigate all these um, transcripts by you know, the institutions of power and the figures of power who uh, created them. 
Uh, she says it leaves you wondering, is it even possible then to uh, exceed or negotiate the constitutive limits of the archive? In other words, can't, you know, never mind the voices of, can we even get any real true material traces of the personhood of these individuals given the avalanche of narrative violence and white racial supposition and power uh, that they represent. Uh, you know, it, it's not so much that we're suggesting that there's an easy answer. I mean, Saidiya Hartman herself says it may be the case that they're not recoverable, certainly not fully recoverable. And so as a scholar, you know, who's really working at the intersection of history, literary theory, uh, philosophy, and, you know, other disciplines, she's trying to create, you know, what she ends up calling uh, either, um, you know, speculative history in some cases. She uses that phrase. Uh, uh, there, there are others. Critical, uh, critical fabulation. Critical fabulation. Uses, incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. Even counter history. In other yeah. words, looking for ways outside the normal paradigm or the normal methodology of, of historical research and writing that can nevertheless somehow recover the past. And I, I'm, I tell you why I'm so absolutely bowled over by her work, you know, Josh, is because as, as we've talked about in History Against the Grain, we're often running into a kind of brick wall if we're, if we're playing by the typical rules of the discipline as, they, as they've been handed down to us, as we've inherited them. You know, the teaching of a certain kind of class with a certain kind of curricular model, you know, with certain topics and, and coverage. If we have to play within those confines, you know, then it's uh, nearly impossible to do, to do justice to the uh, subjective value of, of a life, you know, that was put in the, in the, in the uh, distortive lens, you know, of a slavery archive, you know. And so looking for other avenues, looking for other perspectives, you know, we won't, we're almost duty-bound you know, and, and I know, you you know, we've talked about it this a lot. I know how you know I feel about it is we're almost duty bound. And if we don't do this, if we don't find these other entries, if we quit taking on face value, you know, these archival sources and the stories that spring from them, stories that couldn't help but be stories about white power in this case, of, of capitalist um, dominion, of, uh, of violence inflicted, even if through sleight of hand, they later get you know, fabricated as some kind of triumphal or story, teleological story of progress. We, we, we can't escape that kind of grip, you know, uh, historical grip if we uh, remain complacent. And, and I, I would suggest that by being complacent, Listen, they, you know, doctors, medical doctors, they have something called malpractice, right? I think mm. we're guilty of malpractice if in our world today we continue to feature the same kind of commemorative play. And if we don't listen to scholars like Saidia Hartman who are showing us the matrix, you know, they're showing yeah. us why these stories get woven the way they do and narrated the way they do, um, that we are almost, you know, without option but to accept their implotment, accept their narrative 
um, you know, arc to accept even worse still, accept the conclusions they reach about the nature of progress and, and uh, you know, of uh, in, in that kind of triumphal vein, you know, the idea that history was going the way it was supposed to go uh, all along. So if nothing else, we can call it this ongoing effort to democratize the narrative by understanding how these histories get produced and by looking for the material traces. You know, I was in a webinar with Saidiya Hartman, and she said the reason, even though she was doing literary theory, the reason she didn't turn to fiction is because she was compelled to find the living traces, the non-fictional traces amidst the fictions and lies and distortions of the archive. She wanted those real lives back. She wasn't yeah. satisfied just to make them up, you know, and so uh, that remains her most recent work in 2019, uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval, where she's looking at the lives of uh, black lives of Americans after the Civil War in the Victorian age. She's actually now taking it to that next logical you know, part of not just showing what's wrong with the archives, but actually truly trying to recover the lives from those archives in a way that then doesn't just continue to do violence to them. And so anybody who's interested, we'll put out on the, you know, the episode notes uh, on our website. Wayward Lives is uh, her first, I think, full effort then to explicate what those lives look like when we begin to strip away the violence done to them, not only in their own day, but by the violence that's reproduced then in the archives and in the telling of the stories from the perspective of the archives. Yeah, and I will just add that Venus in Two Acts um, is very approachable. Um, it's it's complex, certainly, but I think it's it's very accessible. And so that's an, a, a really good way into her way of thinking. And And the last thing I'll say is, you know, on the one hand, it's almost intimidating reading her because she's so brilliant and she's so creative. And there's so few people who are can do the things she's doing, uh, take the risks she's taking and, and, and do it in a way that's enlightening and, 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 uh, and edifying and all this, this, this sort of thing. But whether or not you know, we're all capable of, of working on, on her level, it, it, as you said, is malpractice to not listen to what she's saying and, and, and better understand how this production of knowledge uh, has worked and continues to work and, and the part we play in that process. Um, because, you know, as, as I said earlier, there's a lot of just replication in, in the way that history is, is taught and, uh, and learned. And if we don't allow ourselves to be, uh, open to, you know, somebody like, like Hartman, who again is approaching this stuff in such a different way, then we are just committing that malpractice you talked about. We're, we're allowing ourselves to continue replicating these mistakes of the past and and not trying to to, to fix them so mm. um you know it, it doesn't require you know giving up everything you're doing and, and embracing this entirely new way of, of thinking about um uh, about research for instance but it it should at the very least make you think about what you're doing in a more uh, mm. profound and self-reflective way because I, I i don't see how you could read her stuff and and, and not change uh how you think of of this this process of producing knowledge. Yeah, I, I 
completely agree with you. And in fact, every once in a while, you know, she, she, you don't have to read Saidiya Hartman very long to find a, a phrase or a turn of phrase that is just completely disarming. It's so all leave it in this segment uh, to her to say that we can remember well. We can remember well. Because in a time where we are declaring that all black lives matter, we must make sure that the evidence of black women's lives, these Venuses, as they lived, loved, and worked, is undeniably present and forever haunting the public's memory, at the very least. And that idea of haunting the public's memory is part of what she would turn over and say is is remembering well. Because really, the the worst crime would be to forget, right? Yeah. The, the, to leave somebody outside of history. You know, the, the, the dignity, you know, uh, that is denied someone outside of history. You know, the, the indignity, I should say, of someone left outside of history. So, yeah, in, in the words of uh, Sadia Hartman, that we remember well. And listen, friends, we are very excited today. have a very special guest on with us here on History Against the Grain, who has written his own book-length work on trying to remember well. So as we go into our, our, our next segment, we're going to bring on the historian uh, from SUNY Fredonia, Xin Fan, and talk about his book, World History and National Identity in China. The book is uh, you know, extremely fascinating and, and does deal with this question of knowledge production. And, and the, you know what the book reminds us, I think, is knowledge is never produced um, outside the lives of those who are doing the, the producing, that, that whenever we construct historical knowledge, whenever we produce historical knowledge, we're doing so within a context, a social context, a political context, a cultural context that often places parameters on how we can express that knowledge, how we can express these historical ideas. And so uh, Shin is going to talk us through his book and we're going to have, it's really a a wonderful conversation that um, unlike a lot of our conversations actually ends on a very positive note. So uh, I, I look forward to everybody hearing. Uh, the conclusion to this piece, in addition to the, uh, the the rest of it as well. Bring him on. Talk to me. Well, we are very excited to talk to our guest today. Uh, he's the author of a book that I enjoyed immensely. I can just speak from my own perspective. I'm, I know Chris did as well. Um, and one of the reasons I, I enjoyed it because it, it hit so many of my particular interests. First, it's about world history, my own my own field. Second, it largely centers on historians, right? Historians as the center of the story is, is something that any historian would want to read about. And then third, it represents an attempt to rescue alternative views of history from many of the dominant assumptions that, um, that you know, really prevail in our field. So our guest is Dr. Shin Fan from uh, the State University of New York, Fredonia. And the book is World History and National Identity in China. Welcome, Shin. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to History Against the Grain. Yeah, we love to talk about historians, don't we, Josh? Yeah, I know. We're finally, we're at the center of our own story. That's all we ever wanted. <laughs> so exciting, huh? <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. I want to actually start by, by just reading the, the opening 
anecdote that that begins your book. Um, it's so rare to laugh, you know, reading an, <laughs> an academic book to, to laugh. Uh, but I, I legitimately laughed when I when I read this. All right, and we can we can talk about this. But on November seventh, nineteen fifty five, at a faculty meeting of the Department of History at Southwest Teachers College, Sun Pei Leong, chairperson of the department, suddenly stood up and shouted. I, as chair of the department, order Wang Xingyun out. Wu Mi, director of a newly minted academic structure, the teaching and research unit of ancient world history, immediately followed. I, as director of the Jiao Yanshi, order Wang Xingyun out. <laughs> Two weeks later, the secretary of the Jiao Yanshi, Sun Fu Ru, asked if Wu Mi had something else to say in closing another faculty meeting. The latter replied, I just want to kill Wang Xingyun. <laughs> I've been in some contentious department meetings, but nothing that quite gets gets to that. So, can, can we? Can you just talk about what what is the source of the contention here? Why does uh, why does Wu Mi want Wang Xinyun dead? Yeah, this is really, I guess, that's something that uh, goes along with our experience, right? Yeah, but at yeah, the same definitely. time, probably is not the everyday meeting we have here in the history no. departments. Uh, this is like a, a specific moment uh, in, uh, in in China. So this event took place in the 1950s in China. So I'll give you a little bit bit bit, bit of uh, background information. So this is the beginning of the People's Republic of China, and this is the communist government we're talking about. Um, so during this time, the communist government uh, started to create a new sort of system of teaching and research uh, in the field of real historical knowledge production. And this system is called the Jiao Yan Shi in Chinese. And uh, I think the English translation can be the uh, unit, the teaching and research unit. So basically, this is the idea that the uh, uh, communist government uh, uh, applied a system, a um, institution that was supposed right, to come from a the Soviet Union, and they introduced it uh, into China. So the idea was very clear. That is, uh, you know, using this institution to control the process of history knowledge production. But mm -hmm. in this story, you can see uh, not only are they uh, controlling the people, but they are also uh, creating enormous tension uh, between and among scholars, uh, historians. And that's yeah. the story you're talking about. So here yeah. we're looking at uh, two generations of historians. The older generation here we have Wu Mi, who is really famous in China. A lot of people uh, think he's the founding father of the comparative literature studies in China. So he was trained at Harvard University, and uh, he was really uh, very respected in the field of uh, literature studies and historical studies. So this is the older generation. But at the same time, we also have a new, younger generation of historians who were trained at the new institutions that were created by the communist government in China after 1949. So these people were younger generation and they were inspired by the idea of a communist revolution. So, uh, so they were really into the idea, you know, applying what we learned from the Soviet Union and uh, historical materialism, Marxism, into uh, the teaching and research of uh, world history in China. And uh, um, so these two generations did not necessarily get along with each other. So in this case, you can see, <laughs> right. Um, so they, 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 they had this sort of tension be, 
on how to teach world history. Uh, the older generation, in the case of me, uh, he was trained in the West, uh, in the United States specifically, and uh, he hated the idea of teaching world history according to the theological framework that was introduced by the Soviet Union and Stalin. So he hated, he, he hated that idea very much. And this is the reason he didn't do well in, in his teaching practice. Mm-hmm. And then they had this meeting. Uh, in this meeting, basically, the younger generation and the older generation, they were talking about, you know, how should we uh, teach world history and how should we follow the, the order or the directives from the Soviet Union, from the Council government. And um, it is very humiliating because it turned out the younger generation uh, offered a suggestion that uh, they would uh, edit the teaching notes for the older, very respected scholar, Wumi. And so for Wumi, this is humiliating. You know, uh, he's well-respected, and he didn't really think very high of the younger generation scholars, and he didn't believe that these scholars really knew how to do historical research. So, and this is the reason, you know, he became really angry at the meeting. I guess this is the story we're looking at when we're looking at this very, uh, uh, very dramatic moment in 1950s yeah. in China. I, I'm glad you, you mentioned the, the, the kind of generational aspect, because, I mean, the book is very much about these generations of, of Chinese historians going back to the, the late um, Qing dynasty in the, the late 19th, early 20th century into the Republican period, into the Maoist period and then and the post-Mao period and, and the various pressures and, and um, and, and parameters, I guess, that they're they're working under as they try to construct a, a, an idea of of the world. Um, you know, so we call it world history. I think you know it's sometimes referred to as foreign history, right? In in the kind of Chinese historiography, as well. Yep, absolutely. And so it, it's it's a really profound work because I, I think as as practitioners of history, as as you know, researchers and, and scholars and, and teachers. We tend to have our fields. We tend to teach within our fields. We tend to have our, our sets of knowledge that we work within, but we don't always think about the origins of our fields, where where the way we think, the way we teach, the way we write about history comes from. And this book, by, by taking this kind of generational story of scholars, again, from the late 19th century up until basically to the, the 1990s, I think is where we mm-hmm. get up to, or I guess maybe even up to the present, you really get mm-hmm. a sense of how these ways of thinking are not actually innate or immutable, that there's, there's always this process of construction going on. There's always this process of, of scholars, you know, trying to figure out a path they can take uh, where their ideas will be seen as legitimate, uh, where they'll be accepted. And in China, in speci- specifically during, during this period, um, they're also very much worried about, you know, being labeled as rightist, uh, being subject to the, the pressures of, of, you know, of politics as well. And you do have a few of your scholars who um, end up uh, uh, losing jobs and, and sometimes losing their lives in some of these uh, political um, campaigns, we'll just say, of, yeah. of the Maoist period. Yeah, um, I, absolutely. Uh, that, so that, that, that what you mentioned uh, nicely summarized what I was trying to do in this book. Um, and when I'm looking at this topic, uh, looking back uh, when the book is uh, finished and uh, being published in the process, uh, I uh, I go back to the moment, right? So when I first imagined this project, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do, right? What, what I'm trying to do. Uh, 
um, so one is I'm trying to tell the stories of people, and these people right. are us, right? These are historians, mm -hmm. and uh, two is these historians are struggling, right? Yeah. And why? Because these historians are not satisfied with just writing about the history of China, right? So they're, mm -hmm. they're trying to do something bigger than China. They're trying to write a history of the world, however you define it, right? So right. sometimes it's a foreign history, sometimes it's global history, and sometimes it's world history, and sometimes it's history of the West. But either yeah. way, right, they're trying to deal with something that is beyond their identification of being Chinese. Uh, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is, you know, these people are trying to do it over the course of 100 years. So it's a century. And uh, over the course of the 20th century, the Chinese society, the politics, and the culture have evolved a lot. So they were dealing with the same issue, but they were dealing with the same issue from a different social and political positions. Right? So, for example, in the book I'm dealing with, the beginning, it is the late Qing, uh, which is the end of the Qing dynasty, right? the beginning mm -hmm. of the 20th century. And at that time, uh, so the people that I was, uh, I'm dealing with, uh, these are amateur writers. Right. And they came from the gentry uh, background. So they came from a, a rural area and moved into urban area. And uh, they were uh, interested in history and they were Confucian scholars. But at the same time, they also embrace the global, globally circulated ideas of world history. So that's the first generation. And these mm -hmm. people, uh, if we look at them today, they're not professional historians, right? They are amateur right. writers. But they're writing something really interesting because their special positioning, right? This moving, you know, this move from a traditional Confucian worldview to this, to this uh, you know, more and more a globalized view of the world. So that's the first generation, the gentry scholars. And the second generation, um, for me, it's really interesting to see because if you are familiar with German history, European history, American history, you know what's happening um, during the time of 1920s, 1920s, 1930s. So during time, that's the process of professionalization. Yeah. And indeed, the Chinese uh, historians were... Uh, basically going through a similar process. Um, they were uh, becoming academic professionals because there were new universities being established, new ideas of higher education being introduced into China. And these historians start to embrace this idea of professional academics. And they would argue, like a German scholar, like American scholar at the time, they would argue that what we're doing here, right, has nothing to do with politics. We're just pure yeah. academics. And uh, our goal is to pursue uh, academic uh, uh, objectivity. So that's the second generation. But we can, we can talk about more about this generation because these people eventually will be facing the challenge. How much you should stay as professional in the world that your country barely survives, right? So that's a question we have to deal with, but that's a uh, question we can talk about later. So that's the second generation, academic professionals. And the third generation is the one, uh, the ones we're dealing with here in the beginning. That's the 1950s. 
during the time the communist government took over China, and they were trying to convert China into a socialist state, but the practice uh, was not easy, and especially in the sphere of higher education, the challenge was there. Why? Because the communists came from the countryside. And they rarely dealt with、uh, higher education institutions like this, and for them it's a whole new experience. And this is the reason they start to introduce the ideas、uh, from the Soviet Union, and they believe that、uh, each intellectual should be serving of the interests of the state. So it's like you know, it's like you're a small part of the machine, and they start to call these intellectuals as thought workers. Thought <laughs> workers, so they become part of the working class people.、Um, so that's the 1950 was、uh, we're dealing with, and then the last generation we're dealing with here is the ones of the 19, well, I would say late 1970s, early 1980s. So during the time, China embraced its idea of opening and reform, right? Gradually introduced and reintroduced the practice and understanding of the nature of academic work work from the West, and then for this moment, China start to have these experts, right? These professionalized and specialized scholars. So that's the last generation I'm dealing with, and I think you're absolutely right,、uh, Josh. Right? You're absolutely right.、Yeah. I think、uh, we're dealing with this issue、uh, even today, right? So how、uh, these are specialized.、Uh, Academicians, and how do you deal with the limited scope of a、uh, scope of your research in the world that is quickly evolving, changing, and facing a globalized marketplace? So that's the four generation scholars I'm dealing with here in this book. Yeah, it's so fascinating because obviously the the context is so different from our own context in in many ways, but there's there's enough familiarity that you can you know like with that that opening story, I've never <laughs> stood up in a meeting and wished death on one of my colleagues. But certainly, you've had meetings where you're you're angry at a, at a particular colleague or have disagreements with a colleague, and and you can imagine, you know, the extreme that would be the extreme. But you can imagine something like that, and and throughout the book, you know, whether it's issues of of、um, you know intellectual autonomy or or you know nationalism or, or you know bad narratives, whatever the case may be, there's so <laughs> much that's that's familiar、um, a- about this story. Again, even though it's often more extreme than we deal with. <laughs> I want to let I want to let Chris ask this question in a second. I just want to go back real quick to that that first generation. Yeah,、um, go ahead. You know, you called them amateur amateur historians, but you know, it, it's worth pointing out these are these are scholars, right? These are people who have studied, but they just largely have not studied the kind of knowledge that that is now being considered legitimate knowledge, you know, by the West, right? Yeah.、Um, in the sense, they have not gone to the modern style university, but but one、uh, you know ramification of that is that. They're not, they're not hemmed in by these ideas of of what's what professional history should be.、Uh, you know, you you might use this term. I think it's a term you borrow from Pat, Pat Manning、uh, that they're、um, fo- uh, it's historical philosophy more than it's、yep. history in some ways.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, they're trying to imagine, you know, what history can do for for them. Right? They're living in a China that's beset by all these crises, and the the, the Qing Dynasty is. Is quickly, you know, falling apart, and there's all these, you know, problems everywhere. And so when they look at the world, they're, you know, many ways they want to see the world to see, well, what do we do about these 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 issues? Because they just can't find solutions in their own path、uh, past any longer. Is, is that that kind of fair to say? 
Yeah, I, I guess uh, uh, it's both a yes and a no. Um, uh, on the one hand, I agree that the the uh, uh, the, the scholars uh, in late Qing, uh, especially at the opening of the twentieth century, uh, they were dealing with the issue uh, that's very similar with um, uh, the scholars in the colonial world that were dealing mm-hmm. with, you know, the uh, the uh, colonial anxiety, right? So they were facing right. the situation that China one day might be curved off. Like a watermelon, yep. right? That's that's mm-hmm. what they uh, they use, yep. and of course there is this uh, sense of a struggle, and there's a sense of a change, and there's a sense of urgency there. But at the same time, I do uh, appreciate that you mentioned uh, Pat Manning's uh, definition on this. Uh, these uh, uh, philosophers, historical mm-hmm. philosophers, and for them, because they came from different origin, and these yep. people they were not professional historians for a reason. They came from this long uh, intellectual lineage in China. And that's the classical studies tradition in China. And they're part of the Confucian uh, tradition. Uh, so here, um, uh, I offer my intervention uh, in terms of the scholarship of China studies and uh, global history, maybe. Uh, so the intervention here, in the past, there was always this assumption that uh, China's past it doesn't go along with the modernized, globalized world. So there's mm-hmm. tension between uh, Chinese uh, tradition and the global modernity. But mm-hmm. when I'm looking into this specific case, right, especially the case study that I'm dealing with here, it's not necessarily the case because the first individual uh, I wrote about in my book, I write about it in my book, is a Zhangqi scholar who came from a uh, Changzhou area, which is uh, mm-hmm. in today's Yangtze Delta River area, right? And uh, he's a, a Confucian scholar, but uh, he wrote maybe uh, the first book in Chinese using Chinese sources on ancient world history. I don't have uh, very strong evidence on that yet, but that's my um, that was that was my speculation. Maybe this first one. Either way, it's very early, right? And in this book, he makes a very clear argument that, you know, uh, there's no difference between the West and the East. Because we're both, we're all human beings. Our intelligence is the same. But my question here is, is what allows him to come out with such assertion? Because these days, you know, we probably know better. Scholars in China probably know much better than him uh, know about the world back then, right? But, uh, (laughs) but, Lots of people in China today, especially historians, are nationalistic, and he's not. Exactly. So I guess the question here is, what allows him to come up with such assertion, uh, a firm belief in the common nature of humanity? And when I'm looking into it, I'm surprised because that's Confucianism. He Mm. actually came from this intellectual genealogy of a, a school in Confucian classical studies. And that genealogy allows him to uh, be very creative with the knowledge that was introduced from the West and uh, reinterpreted uh, it in the context of a Chinese tradition. So here I can give you one example. Um, sure. So this person is deeply influenced by the idea of evolutionism. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, um, he's also uh, quite uh, against the religions. So for him, uh, if there are... Uh, um, lots of people in the country who are superstitious. He used the word superstition yeah. uh, against religion. So if he, he thinks that if there are a lot of people in the country uh, who are superstitious, and this uh, that country probably is not 
they are good enough, good enough. And, uh, and, and he's quite, uh, you know, against this idea of religion and superstitions. And then he compared the situation of religious practice in China and compared it in the globalized world. He said, you know, there's a lot of superstitious people in China, bad. But at the same time, if we compare the uh, cultural system, um, if you look at China, we have Confucianism. And Confucianism is based on human. And if mm -hmm. you look at Christian West, right, it's Christianity. And look at the Islamic world, it's Islam. And so uh, at this moment, we're not doing well. We're trying to cope with the global crisis. But in the long run, maybe Confucianism actually is the future of the world. So you mm -hmm. can see this. So he's embracing globalized knowledge, but at the same time, he's now trying, he's now losing his identity being a Confucian scholar, right? So this is right. sort of interesting com combination. I'm not saying what he argues right, right? But I'm just pointing out to the fact that uh, this sort of a combination, uh, this sort of a hybridity, right? The uh, Chinese, Confucian tradition and the globalized knowledge about world history together they created something really fascinating at least to my point of view today. Yeah, you know, there's so much um, to say about your book, Shin, because you're doing at least a couple of things. You know, this is this is a, a nimble maneuver you've made here because you're you're not only trying to account for. Uh, you know, the sort of changing historical tides in modern China um, in, in terms of, of sort of their content focus, um, whether it be through the, you know, the, uh, the early part of the revolutionary age where you have this emphasis on the kind of Marxist-Leninist, making world history fit in a kind of Marxist-Leninist um, model. Uh, or later, as you talk about, and I'm, I'm doubling back around to this, um, a more sort of nationalist history uh, but you're also, at the same time, then bringing a kind of biographical approach uh, to uh, understanding. Mm -hmm. Reminding me, I told Josh, reading your book reminded me of the, the statement that's always uh, attributed to Carl Becker, the American historian, that uh, before you study the history, study the, the historian. And uh, so I very much enjoyed uh, that aspect of it because you put a face you know, on the on the scholarship consistently uh, that that is coming uh, out of this, um, you know, this very fertile sort of twentieth century and now twenty first century uh, Chinese historiography. But I guess so. Here's here's what I want to ask you because maybe more than Josh, that opening vignette in your book where you have Wu Mi, this this you know great scholar, acknowledged figure in in China you know, completely undone, you know, he's, he's threatening, if not uh, literal death, you know, maybe at least professional <laughs> yeah. death on these young scholars, these young, you know, kind of uh, Marxist-Leninist uh, Chinese scholars. Uh, and I think, not only because I'm older than Josh, and so I've, I've, I've had more department meetings under my belt that have gotten, you know, probably pretty, pretty heated, pretty personal. But I'm thinking of the American, you know, um, the Academy of American Historians, too. And we've seen recently um, some of the tensions come to the surface of what I think is often depicted as a a, a kind of um, what, uh, how would you describe it, Josh? You know, when I think of uh, historians in the popular mind in this country, I think, you know, pipe smoking, maybe tweed jacket, you know, wearing, <laughs> um, 
you know, calm but erudite, you know, figures. Well, well, listen, you know, in the last year we saw uh, with the, the New York Times uh, publishing of the 1619 Project, uh, we saw a reaction to 1619, you know, by that very staid academic establishment that was a little undone. You know, um, it, it, it got pretty emotional and it, and it isn't over yet. You had historians who were considered some of the deans of American history reacting in, in palpably emotional tones uh, to what they considered to be some kind of breach, you know, by the 1619 project. And, and we just recently, uh, one of the favorite examples, we're going to put this up uh, on the website an article by uh, an American historian named William Hoagland in the New Republic, and the title of his piece was Against the Consensus Approach to History, How Not to Learn About the American Past. Uh, and Hoagland <laughs> is taking on some of those figures who, like, you know, uh, Wu Mi, were, are considered to be the very deans of American historical <laughs> writing, people like Edmund Morgan, and Gordon Wood, and, and basically Hoagland is saying, yeah, they were writing in early Cold War on the other side of the ideological divide, let's say, from the Maoists, uh, writing in an early Cold War about what's called an, a, a consensus approach to U.S. history that goes back to the American Revolution to find some fundamental commitment, let's say, to these, you know, principled uh, views of, of liberty and democracy in these things and, and finding the intellectual origins of that. You know, Bernard Balin, the Harvard historian, writes a book called The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. And yet Hoagland is saying, and then really that's very much what I came up through graduate school reading in, 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 the, in the 1980s and early 90s. And what Hoagland is saying is, yeah, well, looking at it now, it looks a lot more like, you know, Cold War, uh, propaganda. I mean, that's that's my that's my term, not his. But he shows Edmund Morgan sort of refashioning, you know, the the Stamp Act crisis and other events leading to the American Revolution in the context of this kind of ideological commitment to liberty. So it all ends up looking like you know America was trying to maintain its historical credibility there in the fifties and sixties as the defender of the free world, as they used to say. Uh, in you know, in in contrast to the, the Soviets and even the Chinese, so an ideological gloss on an American history that would support the you know political interests of you know the Eisenhower years, let's say, or or the 1960s. So mm -hmm. um, and it ends up being you know sort of nationalist and 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 I guess what I'm interested in you know is then not only hearing you talk more about that kind of you know sort of tension you know, between these um, various schools or generations even of Chinese historians. But also now, as we see in America, we're at a crossroads. We see a lot of pressure being put to produce, you know, patriotic histories. And, and again, the, the, the mm. this sort of nationalism asserting itself in the writing of American history. Um, but you see that's happening in China as well, you know, that as you get the liberalizing you know, in China in, in the 70s under Deng Xiaoping and, you know, uh, the post-Mao era, you, you see a kind of nationalist, am I getting that right? A kind of nationalist assertion, even in the writing of world history in China. Um, Chris, I really appreciate what you mentioned here. Um, 
um, as as a historian, uh, um, uh, the most uh, I guess the happy thing that uh, uh, we can enjoy is uh, other people. Um, well, they're reading your mm -hmm. work, and mm -hmm. they can have a feel of it. So, in other words, I'm writing about China, right? I'm writing about the historians in China, and while you're re reading uh, reading my work from another perspective, you can feel it. <laughs> so, I am truly yes, honored for, sure. uh, for, for 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 your reaction to this, right? So that's one thing, and the second thing here is um, 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 looking at myself. I I grew up in China. And uh, I studied and worked in the United States, in Germany. So when I'm dealing uh, with uh, these individuals, on the one hand, I'm part of it. So I can feel their pain and I can feel their, uh, feel their struggle. And I want to celebrate human agency while writing about historiography, knowledge production, and the changes in society. So that's one thing. And uh, the other side of the story is I'm also writing the story for you guys, right? So I'm writing, uh, I'm publishing this book in English, and I'm working uh, in the United States as a tenured professor. So I feel what you feel, and uh, you feel what I can feel. And together we feel how the historians in China felt, right? So that's the thing that I'm trying to do in my book. So in other words, I'm now writing a book for a narrow audience of maybe two or three China scholars who can speak the language. No, this is not my pursuit, right? I'm trying to speak to the bigger audience. So I'm really happy and honored that you have such a... Um, um, connection, right, when you are Absolutely. talking about my book yes. and where you are reading my book. And indeed, right, so there are a couple of cases I do have such a strong feel. So for example, a couple of years ago when I was on the job market, and I actually introduced this episode to my colleagues at Fredonia. <laughs> and so that's what, that was my job talk. It talked about this <laughs> episode and talked about this strong tension between uh, administration and uh, generations of historians. And when I finished presenting uh, my work, all my colleagues laughed and told me, Shin, this is exactly what we're going on here, right? In, in this department, in this university. But uh, I guess getting beyond of that, so I'm, I, uh, I really appreciate your input on this uh, sort of the rise of nationalistic feeling among conservative scholars in America today. Uh, I feel it. I get it. But but at the same time, I guess the bigger issue that I'm trying to address here is the tension uh, between uh, intellectual autonomy and uh, external influences. Mm -hmm. And in this specific case, we're looking at the intervention from the state. But the state is far away, right? In Chinese, we have this saying, the emperor is far away. Uh, so who is the state? It's not the, uh, the, 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 the party leaders in Beijing, right, in this case. It's really the administration. Uh, and uh, in, in the United States these days, in the higher education here, here right, so these days, we can also have a similar view Right, we're scholars. We're to, doing teaching and research, but at the same time, we do feel certain pressure, either from the changing cultural momentum, or from the administration, 
And I'm not sure if you are with me here, but I do sometimes feel the pressure from the other side. So I guess in that case, I, the fundamental issue here is how do we deal with the process of professionalization and specialization in a changing society like this right today and like back then in China, the 1970s, the 1950s, or the beginning of the 20th century, you name it. But the point here is we're not here alone, right? When we're dealing with the sort of anxiety, right? When we're dealing with the uh, the pressure from outside, uh, you are reading the book. You know that the historians in China, uh, they have been dealing with such an issue over 100 years. So I guess that's an involving question. Uh, do you agree with me? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we we were talking earlier. You know that the because the, uh, I know you studied. Uh, you were a classics student, right? You studied uh, uh, Greek and Rome. Am I correct, Shen? Yeah, so, I did. So you I don't... did. I, uh, I studied two years uh, ancient oh Greek well, okay. and uh, one semester Latin. <laughs> you can appreciate then the, you know the quote that's always attributed to Heraclitus that you know no man steps in the same river twice. He's he's not the same man. It's not the same <laughs> river, right? And so you see these these generational tensions. You see the tensions within the generation between nationalists and globalists, uh, etc. Very, you know, various other kinds of, of conflicts, but but it's never static. I mean, it, it, it continues, as you say, over a hundred year period. It continues to evolve and, and change, and 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 so we, we don't always think of knowledge knowledge production that way. We think it is as cumulative, right? We think what you know, what I build on what you did, and then Josh builds on what I did, but it, but it's it's never, you know, in that sense, linear, is it? I absolutely agree with what you mentioned. I absolutely agree with you. I guess uh, uh, for for us, um, I claim myself uh, 50% of world historian. And I think you two uh, probably claim uh, 100%. So uh, we're, we're, we're sitting by the table of uh, world historians, right? So yeah. when we're dealing with this issue of time, I think, at least from my point of view, according to my study, it is time for us to challenge the teleological narrative of mm. history. So it's never about uh, this linear, single teleological process. In different moments uh, in historical time, and maybe in different areas in historical space or global space, uh, we're engaging the issue uh, again and again. So um, on the one hand, it might be a little bit accumulative, but we also have to understand where is the place or the space uh, that allows such a conversation take place. You know, the changing moment of time or the uh, the certain position, uh, you know, in, in the system of knowledge production, right? So I guess it's time for us to rethink this linear narrative. And if you look at my book, I, I, I intro at least I've tried to introduce the uh, uh, Chinese historian's effort to challenge this teleological narrative of time. So they introduced uh, uh, cultural history and they rethink uh, the nature of classical antiquity and they were debating whether or not Asiatic mode production uh, is um, uh, Eurocentric, Eurocentric or should we come up, come up with better terms while we're writing world history more 
globally and more egalitarian. So I guess that's the sort of question I'm dealing with here. And thank you for pointing out. Yeah, I'm glad you brought, we brought up the, the issue of linearity um, because one of the things that, that stands out from the book is, you know, we start with these these scholars in the late Qing who are searching for common humanity, right? That, that, that They're trying to write history that emphasizes the common humanity of, of everyone. It's, it's trying to um, smooth out the differences that, so, you know, at, in, in the world that time, we're at a point in which race is kind of defining everything, right? That that those ideas of human difference uh, mm-hmm. really pr- are prevailing in, in Western the Western intellectual world, and so you know you, we can think of this as a response to that, or just you know where they got to from their own studies of you know Confucian philosophy or, or whatever whatever it was. What they're going to say is that you know no no it's not about you know these these fundamental differences between all populations. In fact, all humans are the same basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that and that sounds good to us, right? But you yeah. know, at the same point, they're not professional historians. They haven't really, really done the studies, right? They haven't really looked deeply into these various societies. And then you get to the, you know, the the the, the last generation of your book, and they've in some ways kind of escaped some of the the boundaries that their predecessors had to live in, right? That that you know, by the 1980s, you talk about the, the Asiatic mode of production. Uh, and it's such a it's such a heated debate in Chinese historiography. Like, what does it mis- this mean? What does it refer to? How do we place this in this traditional, you know, uh, 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 Marxist kind of mex- mechanisms of, of change? And at a certain point in the '80s, somebody decides, no, we're not going to talk about this anymore, and they stop talking about <laughs> it. Right? It just goes away. Um, right. Uh, but so so then you can think, okay, it's better now because they're, they're, they don't have to, to work within these these strict parameters of Marxism Leninism. But what comes out of that? is not, you know, going back to common humanity. What goes, what, what comes out of it is not, you know, this, um, you know, as, as you talk about this kind of, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the, the quote here, but uh, uh, this uh, the, the, the attempt to transcend cultural chauvinism. Instead, what happens is they kind of descend into, into nationalism. So there's, there's a way of seeing this, you know, the, the account that you're, you're, you're providing here is almost tragedy, right? Because it, it starts from this very, in, in some ways, optimistic place where we don't have to think about, you know, human, humanity just in terms of differences. And then it ends up with scholars who, on the one hand, are more free, I guess we can use that term, um, mm-hmm. to work within a variety of, of historical parameters. But what they end up doing within those parameters is descending into this cultural chauvinism, this nationalist history. And then the other way to think about it is just this is, is a good metaphor for, for history in general, that it's not a his, history is not about progress. History is about change. And sometimes those changes have benefits and sometimes they're costs. And, you know, as opposed to a straight line from, you know, from uh, what's the old line from, uh, uh, you know, from savagery to civilization or what do we want, what do we want to call it? Mm-hmm. Um, it? It's there's no there's no line at all. Right. There's just humans dealing with their contemporary issues, their contemporary crises, their contemporary pressures. And what I think is so valuable about doing this kind of history is that we can look back to these past generations who don't, you know, they don't fit in as professional historians, but they do reveal something about how we can think about the past. And I I think, you know, there's a tendency for historians and for scholars in general to just look at what's newest, right? To look at what's most recent and assume that this is, you know, the best way of doing things. Um, but there's real value in trying to excavate. I think you, when we were talking the other day, you used the term rescue these, these mm-hmm. visions of the past from the past mm-hmm. because they can, they're really important to, to maintain the idea that um, history can look a lot, of, a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Um, 
in a way that, you know, as you, as you talk about the book, professionalization, specialization, you know, what it tends can have the tendency to do is, is smooth everything out and, and get rid of the diversity of, of, of ways of, of thinking about the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and I would like to go back what uh, Chris mentioned uh, early on. Um, so he's uh, talking about the 1980s and from 1980s yeah. on, you can see that uh, the Chinese study of world history, uh, uh, somehow became more and more nationalistic, and that's like it. That's 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 so. We're historians on the one hand. We're dealing with archives, data, and uh, literature. But on the other hand, we're also part of it, right? That's actually yeah. my par- personal experience, right? Being uh, trained as a uh, world historian in China, and sometimes I I did have such a feel. You know, I'm being excluded from a, a conversation about China. And because my colleagues in China who are doing Chinese history will say, you know, this is a Chinese history and you do world history and it's none of your business, right? But, 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 yeah, I, so, so you can also observe the rise of this uh, sort of detention between uh, China and the globalized world, right? So I mentioned one example about this uh, poor student, right? She's uh, taking the uh, uh, civil examination exam and uh, she passed the exam, but then, uh, the local government forfeited her candidacy because um, that's a position for a history major, and her major was world history. So a lot of people told her, "You're not historian, rather you're world historian." So there's such a strong tension. That um, story so, hurt my heart when I read that. that <laughs> I, I felt physical pain when I when I, when I saw that. I, absolutely, absolutely. This is, isn't this is a part of our journey, right? This is a part yeah. of our shared experience. Right. Um, so. I, I do uh, acknowledge and uh, I do write about the rise of nationalism in China today, and especially uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with its impact on the study of world history and global history in China. Um, and I absolutely agree with you. The question here is what is the theological theor- 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 um, theor- framework that allows us to come up with a better conversation. So mm-hmm. if we gave up on Marxism, fine. If we gave up on, on historical materialism, okay. And maybe we can even give up on Confucianism. But the question here is, what is the new framework that allows us to engage a meaningful conversation in a truly globalized format? So I guess here, uh, I would like to offer a little reflection here because I don't sure. want to produce a conversation that is enormously sad. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, uh, you know, you know uh, we, we have a little comfort together, right, sitting uh, by the table over, yeah. over the Mac. So I guess here uh, I'm looking at three um, maybe possibilities. One is I truly believe globalization creates opportunities exciting opportunities for world historical studies. Mm. Uh, so there's a debate about uh, how do we write world history, uh, write about world history. And some people argue we should have all the languages. You know, we yeah. have the time, we have the money, we just study all of it, and then we write a book about world history. Impossible, at least for most people, because yeah. if we do that, it becomes an elite business, right? I'm not from mm. a millionaire family, so I do not have money to do that. <laughs> but we do have the opportunity to experience the world. So in my case, um, so I grew up in China, and uh, 
I uh, studied in the United States, but I also spent lots of time, like a lot of time in Germany. And these, uh, so the, the, the tribal, right, from one culture to another culture, and the practice within one academic system uh, to another academic system. So that allows me, right, to see the world differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in that case, right, globalization creates the exciting opportunity for world historians, because we can see the world differently. Right. So we, we try to get beyond the tunnel view uh, to see the world. And especially uh, when we're lo- lo- looking at world history today, there's so many exciting new opportunities that are being pursued in different parts of the world. So for example, there's new uh, initiatives of global historical studies. So there's the Center of Global History in Berlin, and there's one uh, in uh, Switzerland, there's a couple ones in uh, in the UK, and uh, there's a, a global historical research center in Tokyo, uh, in uh, in China. So there's lots of exciting opportunities. But as historians, we have to uh, step out, right? Get beyond our comfortable zone to deal with different yes. culture and different tradition, and get familiar with different academic framework. So that's my first suggestion. We have to uh, we have to do global history, world history globally and worldly. Mm-hmm. And the second thing here is we should be um, humble because, um, as I mentioned, nobody can speak all the languages, even they try. Uh, maybe by the, uh, by the end of the day of their life, they could probably write one page of world history. <laughs> but most people, uh, we're, we're not able to do it. Uh, so we have to acknowledge the limitation right, uh, of our time, of energy, resource, um, so in that case, we have to uh, be humble and we have to learn from other people. And more importantly, we have to pursue collaboration. So we're not alone here. A conversation like this, I feel, is more uh, in- inspiring than me sitting in my small study and doing my work. <laughs> right? So this sort yeah. of conversation would be the exciting opportunity to create a new knowledge and to create new possibilities, right? So that, that's something probably we can uh, think about in the, in the long run, in the future, right? Do more collaborative works. And this is something that people have been doing uh, over generations. And if you look at the example in China, I think in, in the 1950s, 1960s, one thing they got right was the collaboration among scholars, right? They published mm-hmm. uh, textbooks together, and these textbooks are still relevant in China today. And of course, if you look at Germany, look at the the Global History Lab at Princeton, right? We can see many exciting opportunities of collaboration. And just use myself as an example. In 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 the past five years, I was collaborating with a scholar from Germany, and together we created. So we we collaborating. We we were doing this with. 20 scholars from different, different parts of the world, right? So together, we're looking at the reception of a Greek and a Roman antiquity in East Asia. So you think about that, right? This is a crazy idea. No, nobody can do this alone because the the classical antiquity uh, in the West, which is lots of information, and uh, uh, modern East Asia, which is very diverse. And how can you do both? The reception of classical antiquity uh, Greek and Roman antiquity in modern usage. Impossible for one individual. And this is the reason we need uh, a team of scholars. 
and we're all devoting time to this for five、mm. years. We're able to produce something interesting and、uh, impactful. So that's my second uh, uh, suggestion. And the third suggestion is,、uh, I have been writing about global、uh, specialization, professionalization. I think it's time for us to、uh, ask ourselves, what is the question that we are pursuing? So instead,、mm. we define. Our research question within our research field. Maybe we can define our field with research questions. Yeah, and of course it's a it's an adventure because、um, at this moment, due to the COVID nineteen and uh, uh, marketization of higher education practice in the United States, we don't have the energy and we don't have the money to do it. <laughs> But、mm-hmm. in the long run. We definitely should think about this, right? So, what is the reason that we became historians? Not because we want to go to these academic meetings or <laughs> administrative meetings, right? It's not the reason we do we do that. The reason is we're excited about、uh, new questions, and、uh, we're passionate about pursuing them. So, in that case, I feel that、uh, maybe in the long run we should reposition ourselves, right? Instead of saying I'm a China historian, and you are a world historian. Maybe we should say, in my research, I'm dealing with this issue that is beyond China, that is beyond the world. Right? This is really a innovative question, and I'm I'm excited about it. So that、uh, is my yeah. suggestion, and yeah,、sure. this is the、um, the feeling I have right when I finish the book. It's not really sad, but it just inspires me. That we should do something new together, right?、Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that,、um, Shen. Because, in fact, Josh, we should probably—I、uh, know you're speaking extemporaneously without notes, but we should probably make that a transcript, you know, for our website for <laughs> yeah, people no, to read、beautiful. because it, it's really,、uh, really beautiful. You know, I was kidding Josh earlier today because I also—I do—I was trained as a U.S. historian, and it's always. You know, capital U period, capital S U.S. history, right?、And、I thought if we just took away the grammar, the punctuation marks, the periods, it would just be U.S. as in us. Yeah, you know, it would be us history, right?、Uh, we wouldn't have the pressure <laughs> of that that conforming to that kind of national, triumphal, linear, teleological、uh, storytelling form, and we could actually write histories that explain us to ourselves. Without regard to those kinds of things, so I I, I very much appreciate Shen the、uh, the sentiments you're you're suggesting here, and I wholeheartedly、uh, support you. <laughs> and I appreciate yeah, and I, you being with me together. We're doing this yeah, together. Yeah,、right? I appreciate it's, that. <laughs> it's the best.、Um, yeah, and I, I just want I told you this on the phone the other day, Shen. But、um, you know, when I was reading your book, it's obviously a book that takes place in China, and the sources are are Chinese sources, and you you went to Chinese archives. But the whole time I was reading, I thought I never thought of it as a, a Chinese history. I, I always thought of it as a world history, and it's it's a good reminder that you know doing world history doesn't always mean studying the world, right, or studying the globe. It means I think that the last point you made is is so important. It means asking questions first, and then figuring out where you need to go to answer those questions. And you know, as opposed to the traditional way, whereas if you're a U.S. historian. If your question is going to go beyond those borders of the United States, then you're going to be told stay in your lane. You know, you're taking on too much. How are you supposed to do this? How are you going to get money for this? But I, I really, I really,、um, uh, you know, that that idea that 
let's ask the questions first. Let's figure out what we want to know and then, you know, have the freedom to, to pursue it where it takes us as opposed to starting with the limitations and then, uh, and then, you know, asking questions that we can't, we can't answer within those limitations. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate you uh, taking this from, this is not a tragedy, right? You know, <laughs> funding is growing. Funding is, is, is shrinking. Uh, you know, it's harder and harder to get these jobs in this, in this, in this field, but you know, what, what, you've reminded us and i think what you know part of the point of this podcast as well is to talk about how much exciting stuff is going on and and how vital this this field is and um you know how we can as, as chris said how we can use history to <laughs> explain ourselves to ourselves ultimately that should be our our, our goal and uh you know if anything what we're seeing in, in the contemporary world is that national histories are just not going to get us there national histories are only going to keep us you know hemmed in in the same limitations that uh, has, has really bound history in, in at least, uh, you know, professional history since the start. So uh, I I'm wholeheartedly, agree, wholeheartedly agree that a good place to start is just ask the questions that you want to you want to have the answer to. Um, and if we start there, that's it, it just creates such a more exciting field. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Well, this has been great. This has been amazing, Shin. Uh, really appreciate this conversation. Um, you know, our podcast was created to to have conversations like this, and and you are uh, the perfect guest for the <laughs> discussions we like to have. Um, so once again, the book is World History and the National Identity in China uh, by Shin Fan, and uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much. This is fun. You're not too young. Just do your thing. Well, you know, I'll just say that uh, at, the, at the time we were recording that, uh, he kind of blew us away with with that last last section on, on you know the kind of the three things we can do to uh, you know as we pursue world history into the into the future and, and try to make it a, a history that's free of the kind of cultural chauvinism and nationalism that has infected so much so much history um and uh it was it was really beautiful to hear at the time and and i, I hope everybody got a lot out of that in fact we found it so so amazing that chris went back to his uh his high school days and in, in his typing classes and and create a transcript of that of that last section yeah it's arguably arguably the most important class i took in high school was typing because it allowed <laughs> me to do things like sit down and, and listen to that uh, last 12 minutes of that interview and type out a transcript so Thanks, uh, Mr. King, uh, freshman English typing te or <laughs> typing teacher. <laughs> the fact that you remember his name tells me how important that class. Well, was. he was also the basketball coach, so oh, there you uh, go. That's probably okay. how I ended up in there. But boy, you know, yeah. I got much more out of it than I ever did basketball. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but but get, yeah, back that, to back to Shin's book. Um, you know what? What I I said this in in the interview, but it is a book that takes place in China, but um, it is not you know, only a Chinese history. And so, you know, if you're a historian, if you're somebody who thinks about history, I would definitely recommend picking up this book because it has so much to say about, you know, what we do as historians and, and what it means to produce history, um, whether or not you are uh, Chinese or interested in Chinese history. It very much is a book of, of world history um, to me more than, more than anything else. I think, uh, as we pointed out in the interview, uh, he does any number of things that help us understand uh, this idea of knowledge production, that is history mm -hmm. as a form of knowledge production, with the emphasis here on production, in that, uh, you know, given the time and place and, and uh, 
you know, p- political uh, burdens weighing on a given, uh, you know, writer, uh, be they, you know, of the state or merely departmental politics, you know, the sorts of, uh, of, of knowledge production that come as a result, you know, will, will reflect that. And, and again, it reminds me of the, the statement attributed to Carl Becker, right? You know, that before you study the history, study the historian. And I think, Josh, uh, you know, what we're saying in today's episode is, is that we have to avoid that kind of complacent or passive acceptance of the story as told. Uh, in other words, something we do routinely as, as professors with our students, you know, is to, um, you know, to lay down the challenge of what we call historical thinking, you know, to think critically, as we might say, about the past, uh, but about the past as it gets represented then in the books and articles and movies and pop culture and statues and elementary school names. Uh, in the times that, you know, the, where we live and to think critically about the past to be another line from Carl Becker was every man his own historian. Well, you know, we'd update that. We'd say every man, every woman, every person, you know, uh, his or her own or their own historian. Right. In other words, that most democratic of subjects, I would say, is history, because there really should not be something as simple as a single authoritative voice or a single uh, sacrosanct uh, understanding of the past, but it should be something that we constantly uh, update as our lives then become updated. You know, as our needs, right. every generation, they say we're at Stone history, it's because the needs we have from a particular past change with each turn of a generational dial. And I would just add, you know, the, the, the Becker quote, every person is, is historian, uh, historian. But, you know, based on what we were talking about earlier, with, with particularly in the, in the Hartman section, we can maybe uh, adapt that also to say every person is history, right? That we're all part mm-hmm. of this Beautiful. You know, regardless yeah. of, 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 you know, did we contribute to this thing in this particular way? Uh, are we worthy of being in the history books? Well, regardless of that, um, as, as Hartman was trying to do, excavate these, 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 these individuals whose humanity has been lost to history. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the most subjugated, most oppressed population you, you can imagine, but just as human, just as important, just as vital to hear their stories as... Well, I don't know where we're shitting on Paul Revere today, but as Paul Revere um, or, or any of these kind of founding figures of, 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 um, of American history. I've had, you know, for years, and maybe you've seen it, I don't know, on my desk in the office at work, a little uh, kind of a magnet, refrigerator magnet type thing. And yeah. I picked it up at the John Steinbeck Museum in Salinas, California, I'll have mm-hmm. you know. And uh, uh it's, it, it reflects the point of view that I think Steinbeck had articulated at the time he was writing The Grapes of Wrath. He said, there is a history in all men's lives. And, yeah. you know, again, we would update that, you know, uh, to reflect not a particular gendered uh, assignment, you know, but, but in all people's lives, you know, mm-hmm. every person's life, there is a history. And so, you know, I'm not just trying to be Pollyannish here. I'm really getting as we both are, I think, to what is the most compelling obligation we face today, 
as historians certainly, but really as a nation, as a as a as a global community, and that is to again honor the history in all people's lives, so as not to deny the fundamental dignity and humanity of every of every person. And 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 so if that means listen, taking down statues, changing school names, flipping scripts then uh, we got to do it, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been, we have been, we've been trying to do that for 38 episodes now and, and definitely will continue to do it and, and, and get better at it because, you know, it's not, the point is not to suggest that we are, you know, these enlightened people who have figured this stuff out, but that we're still working on this. We're still trying to understand, you know, these, these ways of, of thinking about and, and producing history and producing knowledge. And it's an ongoing project rather than something you've arrived at, you've achieved, um, or you failed at. Yeah, and I'm going to leave it with, uh, once again, Saidiya Hartman today. And I think it, it meshes well with what uh, our friend Shin Fan had to say. You know, he, he said at the end of the piece, this is not a sad story, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was reminded of that when I read this this uh, excerpt from Saidiya in the um, Venus in Two Acts. She says, the necessity of trying to represent what we cannot, rather than leading to pessimism or despair, must be embraced as the impossibility that conditions our knowledge of the past and animates our desire for a liberated future. So if you're willing to take on the burden, I would say, Josh, um, you, what you're, the project you're undertaking is ultimately is a project of dignity and liberation. Well, this has been History Against the Grain, episode 38, and we will be talking to you again in two weeks. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. So we were stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we were